thank you for what you have revealed to us, and especially now as we think about what you have revealed to us about the place where your children get to spend eternity with you. It is so good, God. You are so good. And God, we know that you won't just be good there. You are also good here right now. We praise you for that. And we pray that we will be strengthened and encouraged to keep walking with you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever lost something and really wanted to get it back? I mean, we've all been there, right? You put your keys somewhere and you don't... You ever look all around for your keys and you find out they were in your back pocket the whole time? Or, or think about something more important that you've lost, like a, a broken relationship with somebody, or something that's very dear to you. Have you ever lost something and just desperately wanted to get it back? You think about some of our movies that are so popular in this day and age, and, and that's the storyline of many of them. Something was lost or taken away, and the main character tries with all their hearts and all their soul to get it back. Does it feel good to have lost something? There's a story that I tell my kids, they love this one, about something that I lost when I was six years old. We were camping. We, we call it camping. This is about the only kind of camping I really like to get into. But we, we had a camper, and we parked it next to a cabin that had you know, running water and all that. But uh, it was one of those pop-out campers, you know, where the beds pop out and you put canvas over the side of it. And that's where I was sleeping. But then there came this big windstorm, and, and we realized that our camper wasn't a very safe place to be in this windstorm. So we hightailed it into the cabin and, and waited out the windstorm. And when it finally died down, we went back out to survey the damage, and we realized that the wind had kind of taken off the canvas off of one, one of those sides, one of the beds there. And we saw my blue pajama bottoms on the ground. And, and I thought, uh-oh, where's the rest of my blue pajamas? Because those are my very, very favorite pajamas ever. They were blue, and they were fuzzy, and they were warm, and they had pictures of six NFL helmets on them. And I just had it had to get those pajamas back. So we, we looked around for those pajamas and, you know, we, we knew which way the wind was blowing and we looked on the lawn and it wasn't there and then we looked on the road and it wasn't there and across the street from the road was a slough. And this was not one of those sloughs that you can kind of wade in and get it. It was, if it's in there, it's gone. And I think, I think what happened is that my dad saw my blue fuzzy pajama top in the slough, like either floating on the surface or dangling off a tree or something. But what he did is he got his fishing rod <laughs> and a hook on the end of it and cast and cast and cast. I don't know how many times he tried and tried and tried to get those pajama tops, but he couldn't do it. They were gone. You know, me being the trusting kid, I figured, oh, my parents will just buy me another one someday. But no, that never happened. And those pajama tops had remained lost forever. Um, I'm over it now, finally, but um, <laughs> it doesn't sound like <laughs> Deep breath. <laughs> Christmas present idea. Yes. <laughs> We as a human race lost something. We were created to have perfect fellowship with God, and we lost that. You can read about it in Genesis 3, the first book of the Bible, the third chapter there. It's the story of Adam and Eve, and I think we all know the story, right? God made this garden paradise for them to live in, and he said to Adam, Adam, you can eat from any tree in this garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that or you will surely die. And we know what happened, the rest of the story. Adam and Eve took of that tree that they were not supposed to eat from. And as a result, God banished them from the garden. 
The rest of the Bible goes on to explain the story of how God came to rescue us. Because of his great love for us, God wants to take us from where we are, lost, and bring us to himself and bring us back to him in perfection. We call it heaven. It's a wonderful place. We're in week three of our four-week sermon series here at Cornerstone where we're looking at heaven. We're studying the last two chapters of the Bible, and it's pretty neat how, you see how what we lost was in the third chapter of the Bible, and then we fast forward to the very end, we're looking at these last two chapters of the Bible, and we see God restoring in his great mercy. He wants us to have something better. Now, I've been trying to help you understand throughout this sermon series that heaven is a better place than we can imagine. And I think too many people have too small of a view of heaven. And and what that causes for some people, if we have too small of a view of heaven, we have too small of a view of God, and we don't live our lives here the right way. So I have two goals in this sermon series. The first goal is to help you have a a higher, a richer, a a more biblical understanding of what heaven is. And that's my first goal. But the, the second goal is more important. And the second goal is that having this higher understanding of heaven and the God of heaven should cause us to want to pursue the God of heaven right now even more and to get to know him more and more. Because if he's God who has a wonderful place for us there, then he's our very good God right now and we should seek him. So I've been trying to teach you some things that are true about heaven. And and today we're going to look at a passage that says some awesome things. And really, this is one that I have been looking forward to for a long time. And here's my big idea for our passage today. In heaven, we will be fully satisfied and God will be glorified. In heaven, we will be fully satisfied and God will be glorified. Now, perhaps as I gave that big idea, some of your minds started to recall the Westminster Catechism. There's a famous quote. Maybe some of you even want to memorize this quote. It's a good one. It says, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And as I started thinking about that, I started thinking, well, if Brian Carlson were preaching this sermon, he would quote John Piper here, right? What's the quote, Brian? Can you give it to us? Uh, God has most glorified us when we are most satisfied in him. Now, both of those are great quotes. And I think both of those, the the Westminster Catechism and John Piper, are are viewing our life here on earth. And the idea is is that as we enjoy him for who who he truly is, we, we receive joy and he receives glory. And that's the way that our lives are supposed to work. Well, think about that now in light of heaven. In heaven, God will perfectly give us everything that we could ever need, and we will enjoy it. And our our very enjoyment of those things in heaven will be worship of God, and he will be glorified. As a result, we'll live in this perfect cycle of, of a perfect relationship with God. And as I've been saying repeatedly, I think the best part about heaven will be our perfect relationship with him. And also, I want you to know that it will be an awesome place there. It will be better than you can imagine. But really what I want you to get out of this sermon series is knowing those things about heaven should urge us to seek God more and more right now. By seeking him now, we can live with a foretaste of heaven. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done, where and when? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray that way. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should expect perfection right here and right now. The Apostle Paul was clear on that in 1 Corinthians 13.10. He said, but when perfection comes, the imperfect will disappear. We live in imperfection right now. 
But what I am saying is that we can live with a foretaste of heaven right now as we seek God, as we ask for his kingdom and his will to come, that we live with a glimpse of what heaven can be like in our relationship with him now. So again, that's why I have these two goals of this sermon series. One, to tell you some things that are true about heaven. But really, even the purpose of that is to help you understand how we should be seeking the God of heaven now. So we're looking at the last two chapters of the Bible, and today we're going to look at Revelation 22, verses 1 through 6. And I want to show you from these verses some awesome things about heaven, but hopefully these will encourage you to seek the God of heaven now. And by the way, again, just to clarify, I'm using the word heaven, but really, to be technical, what we're talking about here is the new heaven and the new earth the new Jerusalem, where God's children will get to spend eternity with him. Okay, I want to read the passage now. Revelation 22, starting in verse 1. Then the angel showed me, and that's the Apostle John, the river of, of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne and of God, excuse me, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So this vision of heaven starts off with a description of the river of the water of life. And just like last week, at the end of chapter 21, a bunch of the imagery was borrowed from Isaiah 60. Now this week, a bunch of this imagery is borrowed from Ezekiel 47 and 48. And some of you may want to go home and read those chapters today or this week sometime. And and for some of you, when you hear the phrase, the water of life, you might think of some of Jesus' words. Remember, Jesus talked about living water. In John 4.10, Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. A few chapters later, Jesus said that streams of living water can flow from within us because of the Holy Spirit. And the word picture of living water in the Bible then is a picture of God sustaining us. So in Revelation 22.1, what we should notice is that the river of the water of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In heaven, we will be nourished by the life-giving water that flows from the throne of God. It, It sounds very satisfying to me. And the image of a throne is significant. That's where the river flows from. The image of a throne is significant in Revelation because who's on the throne? Well, it's God. The picture that we get is very much of God reigning supreme in heaven. And by the way, that should remind us that God is still king right now. It's not just a message of him being king eventually. He is king right now. And the application for us is that we should submit our lives to him right now and seek to know him more and more. Okay, and then moving on to verse 2, the images of the tree of life on each side of the river. Now, I used to picture one big tree kind of straddling the river, but uh, I was corrected by a theologian this week as I read it. He said it's probably more accurate to think of this as multiple trees of life lining the banks of the river. Uh, And I think that's right. Um, But what's significant is the name, the tree of life. Where have we seen the tree of life before in the Bible? 
Genesis 2, right? When God put Adam in the garden, we, we know there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he was not supposed to eat from. And if God said, you may eat from all the trees except for that one, and also the tree of life was in the garden, what did that mean? It meant that he, he could eat from that tree of life. But we all know what Adam and Eve did. They chose poorly. And after eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said of man, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why? Why did God do that after Adam and Eve sinned? Why could they then not be allowed to eat from the tree of life? Because of sin. If they were to eat from the tree of life, they would have lived forever, and they were in their sinful state at that moment. So God, in his mercy, banished them from the garden so that they couldn't take of the tree of life and eat forever and remain forever sinful. God had a better plan in place. And it's pretty amazing the steps that God took after banished them from the garden. It says in Genesis 3.24, He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God is very adamant. He did not want sinful people to be able to take of the tree of life. Remember that. And that, that picture followed the curse. The curse brought about by man's sin. This is a, this is a terrible thing. The curse. And, and actually the way I think about it, the curse is something that, that God brought about on this world and on us. And the curse was always meant to be a reminder of sin. We were talking about that in our adult Sunday school class today. The severity of our sin is not to be taken lightly. Our sin is a big deal, and because it is such a big deal, God put this curse down on humanity and on the world. When Adam and Eve sinned, everything changed. And the changes that we read about in Genesis 3 explain so much of our world today. See, Adam and Eve used to have unhindered fellowship with God in in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. But they lost that when they sinned and they were banished from the Garden and were not allowed to eat from the Tree of Life. And the curse brought about such things as pain and childbearing and painful labor in our work and marred relationships and thorns and thistles. And I was thinking about that. It didn't say leaves, you know, raking and things like that, but that might be part of the curse too. And, and worse, death. Now I want to ask you, are any of you in here sick of the curse? Are any of you in here sick of the result of our sin? Pain and childbearing. Anybody sick of that one? I, I am. I mean, <laughs> no, I, I joke about that, but... Uh, it really, I mean, it looks painful from what I've seen. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's pretend, you know, it looks really painful. So, um, uh, but other things, marred relationships. Are any of you in here sick of having broken relationships because of your sin or because of somebody else's sin? Are any of you in here sick of having hindered fellowship with God because of your sin? I am sick of those things. Anybody here sick of death? Anybody here, you know, why, why do they have to die? You know why they have to die? Because of sin. And God, actually in his mercy, brought about the curse to remind us how there's something worse than physical death. There's spiritual death that God wants to save us from. We live daily. We live with constant reminders now of how things now are not as they should be. Okay? Okay? Again, if we were to 
pass the microphone around and just you know, start with the first person here. Tell us all the things in your life that are not as they should be. How long do you think it would take before the microphone went all the way around the room? Things now are not as they should be. If now we're perfect, we wouldn't think about eternity. Ever thought of it that way? If now we're perfect, we wouldn't think about eternity. But we do. Every single one of us thinks about eternity. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity in our hearts. And the reason that we think about eternity is because we know that right now is not perfect. We lost something. And what we lost was paradise and a perfect relationship with God. God created the Garden of Eden to be a delight. That's what the word Eden means. It means delight. Adam and Eve were to live in perfect fellowship with God, with each other, with God's creation. But we lost that because of their sin. And by the way, don't be too hard on Adam and Eve because every single one of us in this room has proven that we are just like them and that we are sinners too and that we seek our own way. Well, that's bad news, right? That's kind of the story of Genesis 2 and 3. But that is not the end of the story. That's why we have a very thick Bible and that's why it ends the way it does in Revelation 21 and 22 with something better. If we look at our passage again today, we see that the tree of life will be in the midst of heaven where we will live with God. And it says in verse 3 that there will be no more curse. Hallelujah, right? It says in verse three, uh, or excuse me, verse two, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, I don't think that that means that in heaven we will have an ongoing need to be healed. Just like in twenty one four, I don't think it means that we will continue to cry. I think what it means in both of those verses is we will have this picture of forever healing right in our midst, the healing that God will give to us. You see, the worst part about being a human is that we lost something, something even more valuable than pajamas if you can imagine that. (laughs) We were banished from the garden and we lost fellowship, that perfect fellowship with God. But in heaven, sin is no more. Jesus took care of the the penalty of sin on the cross. And, And it says in Revelation 21 that nothing impure will ever enter into heaven. And we know that we get to enter into heaven because of the blood of Christ. And that means that if we're there, then there's no more sin in us either sin will be taken away. We will no longer have hindered relationships with God, no longer have marred relationships with each other. It'll be perfect. See, Adam and Eve also, um, they couldn't eat from the tree of life due to their sin, but in heaven, we will eat. I'm excited about this one. It says that the the tree of life will bear fruit every month. Question for you, what's the best fruit you've ever eaten? Uh, think about that in your mind. Just a time where you just you bit into something. Oh, it was so good. I, I've had some good pears lately. But when I think about the best fruit that I've ever eaten, I think of my friend Hyrula's Orange Orchard in Turkey. And he took me to visit there one day. And we were walking around. And I, I kind of like oranges. They're okay here. I prefer orange juice. Somebody's already taken the hassle out of it. I just have to drink it. But, um, but my friend Hyrula said, grab one of the oranges. So I grabbed an orange and I peeled it and I took a bite and it was so good. I just, I, I wanted to squeeze it on top of my face and just let the juices run down and then grab another one and do the same thing. It was just, it's my dream, okay? You don't have to 
be the same, but uh, I've been trying to teach you in this heaven sermon series that heaven will be more than harps and clouds. And one of the things that helps me understand is this idea of eating. There will be other things to do besides just sitting around and playing a harp. There will be a feast. In Isaiah 25, which I think is talking about heaven, uh, although it's hard to understand exactly how, but it says this, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And we know it's talking about heaven because it says there, he will swallow up death forever. Now I know for some people the idea of food is a, a painful thought here. Because for some reason, whether because of, of medical concerns or, or due to weight concerns, some people just you know, can't enjoy food the way that they would really like. But, but think of this. God, in some ways, has given us a foretaste of heaven in the food that we enjoy here. And, and the fact that we enjoy it here is meant to remind us that we will really enjoy it there. Think of it this way. God himself will spread a banquet for us. It will be the best of foods. It will taste so good. And we won't have to count calories or fat grams or carbs. We won't have to worry about our waistline there. And think of it this way. Our very act of eating that wonderful food will be an act of worship to God. The banquet that he has provided for us and wants us to enjoy. That's part of what heaven will be like. I think that's really cool. In heaven there will be no more death, there will be no more curse. Grant Osborne, a theologian, said, the curse placed on humankind because of sin has been removed. And this leads to absolute security. We will live in a better place than the Garden of Eden. And then I want to point out one other thing from verse 3. It says, no longer will there be any curse, but then it also says, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Now, perhaps it doesn't strike you as a glorious thought when it says that his servants will serve him. But it is. Think about it this way. Before the fall, Adam served God. In Genesis 2.15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And remember, this is before the fall. Before there was sin in the world, God gave Adam work to do. And this word work is a word that carries a double meaning. One meaning is to serve. Like when you, when you work, you serve somebody. But it, by implication, another meaning of this word work is worship. In fact, sometimes in the Bible, it's almost impossible to distinguish whether the word means work or worship. You think about the Levitical priest who served in the temple. Was their work, was it work or was it worship? It was both. And that's the way it was for Adam when he was tending the garden before the fall. Before God placed the curse on the earth, before the painful toil, Adam had meaningful work to do, and it was a joy to him, and it was honoring to God. And that's the picture that we'll get of it in heaven. That we will have meaningful work to do. His servants will serve him. So we should rejoice at the thought that in heaven there will be meaningful work for us to do. And so again, the, the picture of heaven just being hearts and clouds is way off. There will be meaningful, soul-satisfying work for us to do. Now, one of, the, one of those ways will be to worship. So the idea of harps, you know, it does mention harps. And, and maybe some of us, you know, I said that word harp can also be guitar. Maybe some of you will be rock stars for God. But I was listening to a sermon from my former pastor in Illinois, and he picked out a bunch of verses in the Bible that talk about the work that we will do in heaven. I want to read for you one of them. 
It's in Isaiah 65:21, which is talking about the new heaven and the new earth. It says, They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And, and my pastor was saying, In heaven, you might get the job of being a construction worker or a gardener. So we think about work in some ways on earth is satisfying. There are some things that we do that we just really enjoy and we feel like, I was created for this. In heaven, that's the way it would be all the time. God will give you meaningful work to do, to serve him. And maybe your job will be to be a worship leader. Heard a funny story about that one. Uh, Billy Graham, you all know the evangelist, and, and George Beverly Shea, I'm sure many of you are aware of him, the, the worship leader for many years in the Billy Graham Crusades. I heard that, that they had this conversation, and George Beverly Shea was laughing. And Billy Graham said, now why are you laughing? I, I'm not going to do it again. Okay. <laughs> why, why are you laughing? He said, well, because in heaven, it talks about us having wonderful jobs to do. And, and I'm a worship leader here, and I'm picturing myself in heaven leading this wonderful choir with the best music that you've ever heard. And you, Billy, as an evangelist, will be out of a job. <laughs> in heaven, we won't have to tell other people about God. We won't have to share the gospel with everyone there will know but we will all have wonderful work to do. And our work will be a joy to us, and it will bring glory to God. And I said this before, and I want to say it again. This is kind of one of the things that's, that's really solidifying for me in this sermon series. Everything we do in heaven will be an act of worship. Everything, from eating, to working, to resting. It talks about heaven as rest. Everything we do there will be worship. Now, by application, then, we should try to live like that now. Remember, if the point of heaven is to give us this glimpse of what perfection will be like, we should seek God that way now and to say, I work now. God, can I worship you with my work now? So think about that. If the word work can mean both work and worship, can you worship God with your work? Yes, you can. Can you worship God as you rest? Yes, you can. In Colossians 3.17, it says that we should do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's talk about whatever we're doing. See, the best life for us, both here and in eternity, is a life of serving God, trusting him to fill us with joy. Okay, I want to move on to verse 4 now. And I, I realize I've gotten kind of long-winded on the first three verses. I'm going to move through these next three verses a little bit quicker. So. Verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The idea of seeing God's face is an interesting one in the Bible. In Exodus 33, God asked if he could see the Lord, or excuse me, Moses asked to see the Lord's glory. And the Lord responded by letting Moses see him, but not his face. In verse 20 there, he said to him, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And even after Jesus came, we might have thought, well, maybe something changed there. But in John 1.18, we read, no one has ever seen God but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So right now, we can't see God's face. Again, that, that's just due to the fact that we live in a fallen world and we're sinful human beings. Yet, some of the writers of Scripture talked about the idea of seeing God's face as their goal. Psalm 17.15 says, And I, in righteousness, I will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. And Jesus even said in Matthew 5.8, 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So right now, we live with hindrances. Right now, we can't see God's face. But our goal is that eventually we will see Him face to face, and we will have an unhindered relationship with Him. And that is something to look forward to. Listen to what John says. So the same John who wrote Revelation in his letter in 1 John 3.2, he said, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Again, I'm trying to stress this idea that the best part about heaven will be a perfect relationship with God where we will see him face to face. So what should we be doing now? We should be seeking him. Seeking his ways. Seeking to follow after him. Pursuing him even more right now. Because then we will be fulfilled. If eventually in eternity we're going to be fulfilled by seeing God's face, what we should do now is seek him. Be fulfilled that way. Okay, then verse 5. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, a lot of this is kind of a repeat of what we looked at last Sunday at the end of chapter 21. There will be no night in heaven. God is light and he will perfectly lead our way. It it reminds us of Numbers 6 where there was a blessing that God gave to Moses. He told them to have Aaron tell the Israelites uh, that God's face would shine on them and be gracious to them. In heaven, that will happen forever. God will shine on us and be gracious to us. So that's kind of a repeat. But then there's one little part at the end of verse 5 that's kind of new compared to last week. It says that his servants will reign forever and ever. It doesn't just say that they will live there forever and ever. That's kind of what I expected it to say. It says they will reign forever and ever. And I looked up that word reign. Does it really mean reign? I looked up that word in a Bible dictionary and it means to have the authority of a king. That's what it says that we will do in heaven. Now, make no mistake about it. God is king. We're not going to replace him as king. We're not going to become equal to him as king. But we will reign with him. Again, God will give us meaningful work to do. There's a parable in Luke 19 that Jesus told about ten servants who were each given one mina. A a mina was worth about three months' wages. Remember this one? Two of those servants invested that mina faithfully. So the the, the man gave them this money and then he went away on a journey. Um, And these two faithful servants, one of them took that one mina, invested it, and earned ten more. The other one invested it and earned five more. And what was God's response, or what was Jesus' response to them in that parable? He said, Well done, my good servant. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Isn't that interesting? They started with one mina, and their their, their reward for being faithful was to be in charge of ten cities. Now that's just a parable, but in that parable it talks about the kingdom of God. It talks about the king. He he was a king going away and returning. Does that sound familiar? Jesus, our king, came, went away, and is returning. And it talks about rewards for faithful service. What do you think that parable means? Well, I think it means at least two things. First, God wants us to invest what he has given us here. So we often talk about the three T's, time, talent, treasures. What has God given you? What can you invest those things in? It matters because there's going to be rewards coming later. And that's my second part is that there will be rewards. That's the second thing we can draw for sure from that parable. There will be rewards 
in heaven. In Matthew 6.20, Jesus tells us, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You see, we who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we don't just get into heaven. We will reign with him there. And, And it tells us here to store up treasures for there. So our lives right now should be about the Master's business, doing what it is that he wants us to do. And what is it that our Master wants us to do? Well, I love how we've said it here at Cornerstone Church. Our mission statement, a passion to know Christ, commissioned to make him known. Two things, knowing Christ and making him known. Another way I like to say it, be a disciple, make disciples. That's the master's business. So if you want rewards, if you want to be found as one of those faithful servants, it's not minas that God is giving out right now. He wants us to know Christ and to make him known. We will be rewarded according to how we have done those things. Okay, and then moving on to verse 6. I want to read it again. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. From that verse, what we understand about God is that he wants us to know these things. He, He... In some ways, in many ways, heaven is a mystery. But also, God has revealed to us the end of the story. He wants us to know what must soon take place. Now, it says the word soon in there. How should we take that word soon? This passage was written almost 2,000 years ago, and the end hasn't come yet. So how do we view the word soon? Well, let me tell you three quick ways, and it's going to come up again next week. And this is important for us to know. Three very quick ways we can take that word soon. First, 2 Peter 3.8 says, with the, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So in God's perspective, 2,000 years, do the math, two days. It hasn't been a long time yet. Second way we can look at it, if you look at the Bible as a story with chapters, one of the chapters in the Bible would be about Jesus coming and dying and rising again. The next chapter would be about the age of the church, which we live in right now. And then the next chapter would be about Jesus coming again. So again, in that sense, it's soon. It's the very next chapter in human history to be written. And then third, I think the Bible says Jesus is coming soon because we don't know when it will happen. Yes, there are signs that we should look for, but we don't know. And because we don't know when Jesus is coming again, the clear message of the Bible is that we must be ready now. He could come at a time when we do not expect and we must be ready right now. One of the points I've been trying to emphasize over this sermon series is that the important question about heaven is are you in or out? So let me just ask you this question. If you were to die today, would you go to spend eternity with God or away from Him? We must know the answer to this question. In our passage today, it talked about God's servants having his name on their foreheads. So how do we know? How do we know if we're in or out? How do we know if God's name will be on our foreheads? Well, the answer has everything to do with Jesus Christ and his gospel. And if you have received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and if you continue to walk with him, the book of Revelation calls you one who overcomes. Again, if you have received Jesus as Savior and Lord, and if you continue to walk with him, The the description of people like that in the book of Revelation is he who overcomes. And listen to what it says in Revelation 3.12. There's lots of verses about he who overcomes. Here's one of them. 
Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on him my new name. So again, the clear message of the Bible is that we must be ready. Jesus is coming soon. Have you received him as Savior and Lord? Are you walking with him right now? And if you're unsure at all about that, we'd love to chat with you about that. You can even just talk to God right now and and tell him that you'd like to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord and that you give your life to him. The way to be ready to know Jesus and to keep walking with him. And then here's my conclusion. Very simple by this point. Heaven will be better than we can imagine. And, And the God who will make heaven an awesome place is the God who desperately wants a relationship with you right now. In heaven, there will be treasure upon treasure. Now, what are we supposed to do? Store up treasure. In heaven, we will serve and worship God. What should we do now? Serve and worship God. I hope that this study of heaven so far has been encouraging to your soul to see the many wonderful gifts that God wants to give to you and I hope that the result has been that you have desired to seek him more right now. So we're going to close again by singing the song Behold Our God. It's a song that reminds us to look to God right now and to to seek after him, to remember that there is something different about him than anybody else, that he alone is worthy of worship and he is the one who wants to bring us to his side so that we can live with him forever in perfection. So as we sing this song, I want you to think about God. I want you to think about heaven, but I also want you to think about how we should continue to pursue him now. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these awesome things that you have revealed. God, I'm looking forward to that, to serving you, to eating of the tree of life, to worshiping you, to having perfect relationships with you and with other people, to enjoy you forever. God, thank you, thank you that you have revealed that to us and that you have made that all possible through Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we praise you for what you did to make that possible. But God, we know that the response that you're looking for from us is a response of faith and a response of wanting us to seek you now. So God, I pray that we would do that today and every day of the rest of our lives, that we would walk with you with wholehearted devotion and that we would honor you with everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.